the problem is that there is no regulatory definition. And ESG funds, mutual funds, and ESG stocks that tout themselves as being ESG, uh, very, very good for the environment, very good for social, whatever, very good in governance, have for the last couple of years sold better than the ones that don't tout themselves as being high ESG. Right. And there's no definition for ESG. So the one of the things that, that Gary Gensler, the chairman of the SEC, is doing, which I think is positive, is going, he's starting with the mutual funds and said, give me your definition of why you say you're an ESG fund. What is the, what is yeah. the objective criteria you're using? And they're going to go, well, uh, uh, we like we, it. Uh, we like the we E like and we like and, the uh, S and we like the G and they're good letters and, to have on here. And sales are a lot better when we say ESG. <laughs> <laughs> Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fall, fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning. Something. Yeah, something, something that like that. Something mm -hmm. that effect. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. And then welcome to another exciting episode of the Personal Wealth Coach, where we will talk about such exciting subjects as the federal interest Reserve, rates. Interest rates. Um, uh, but wait, there's more. We'll talk about unemployment, too. Uh, these exciting subjects and more will be yours if you tune in. Don't forget cryptocurrencies. Oh, yes. Crypto. We have to talk about cryptocurrencies. That, I was trying to make it as boring sounding in an exciting voice, but cryptocurrencies, people are still kind of excited about those. Mm. In a mm. few years, they'll think they're boring, but right now, they're still. it's an exciting subject and people are... So I was trying to get the viewership down with our intro using a really oh. excited voice. Stable coins. Yeah, how? What is our viewership, by the way? Uh, me and you for sure. I mean, yeah, yeah. So we have a, a our, our radio program has a viewership of two. Listeners may be different, but our viewers are just the two of us. Um, so, and you know, people are always measuring viewers, and our ratings just are horrible when measured in viewers. But we have a consistent rating. Yeah, there's always somebody looking. Uh, it's. Well, unless one of us is blinking at that particular moment, then then we mm. lose half of our viewers for just a moment. It's horrible, horrible. I tell you, yep. the, the yep. demographic studies on this are going to be brutal. Anyway, well, this is this is the personal wealth coach. In case you thought it was something else, and just, and we have and some the, disclosures to to start uh, before we uh, talk start uh, talking uh, about uh, the economy. Uh, so number yep. one. Uh, you already said it was the personal wealth coach. That's our first disclosure. Yeah, that's the first one. Yeah, number two, which has which has a little circled R after it. Uh, Jeff and Jake McClure are both bald men, mm -hmm. right? And they have so, beards. Those is the second disclosure is out of the way. Um, the personal wealth coach is not just the name of this radio program and or podcast, depending on which way and how media is being applied. Um, herewith, therefore, and here to for. Because why not throw a bunch of words together and make them one word? Cool. You um, need to be an you need to be an attorney or a German. Mm, okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay. So, um, we're not just the name of a radio program podcast. It's also the name of a registered investment advisory firm registered with the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, that doesn't mean that the SEC likes us, dislikes us. It doesn't mean that they have are patting our head in approval. In fact, they don't do that. That that doesn't. That's not a thing. 
those that would say that the SEC like them, it's a good way to get the SEC to do the opposite of pat their head in approval. Right. But those are the regulators of the advisory firm that would, that we also manage. The two people that are on this program are the managing members of that firm as well. Um, but just because it's registered with the SEC doesn't mean that we're allowed to give investment advice on the air. Well, what are we doing here then? Well, investment advice is something we have to give knowing who we're talking to, but we can give you education. We can talk about what's happening in the world and what it means. We can talk about taxes and, uh, and how that might impact the economy. We can talk about all that good stuff in a very general way. Uh, things that we would say to anyone, because literally that's what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you want to get the next disclosure? Oh, I was so wrapped up in your disclosures. I thought they were just super cool. Mm. Uh, it's let's the see. weather. I need to we put don't a coat give it, on. We don't, we don't give investment advice, but we do give educational information. And that educational information has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable. However, we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And that we and guarantee. It, yeah. We and guarantee that thing, we don't guarantee it. The other thing is we don't pay for this radio program. That's correct. But nor are we paid for the radio program. We're volunteers. And we do advertise on KTEM. For the radio um, program. For the radio program. And KTEM advertises on KTEM for the radio program in a partnership so with us. Why do we have to disclose all those things? Because we do. Because That's, we want to. Um, it, it seems like if there's money changing hands, people should know about it and they should know why. I mean, if somebody's doing a paid commercial program, that's different than offering education. Let me, let me make this point. And the reason we actually had to do that disclosure, um, we are a fiduciary independent SEC registered investment advisory firm when we're not on the radio. Well, we are, we're on radio too, but we're just not giving investment advice. And as such, we are required to do some stuff that a lot of other folks aren't. And we're required not to do some stuff that a lot of other folks do. And we, we have we have voluntarily given up some of our free speech. And we've also voluntarily given up getting money from the people who offer securities and vendors and right, so on. Right, right. So uh, I, we think it's important that the people that talk to us, around us, through us, and at us understand the money flow because it's kind of important to the people that are making decisions on their own assets as to who's getting paid. Uh, I think I think that's important. Unfortunately, the rest of the investment industry, the vast majority of it, doesn't think that you absolutely need to know about this stuff. But we think it's important. We we get paid by our clients. Yes. End of. End of, that's it. Nobody else pays us. And which the, the legal definition of that, by the way, is fee only, which mm, nobody yeah. understands. Oh, what's that? Huh? Okay. Uh, that just means that we're not paid by some corporate overlord to bring assets to them. Instead, we are overlord. paid individually by our clients to manage their investments and to give them advice. Cool. All right. Um, well, we've got questions waiting for us from Inquisitor John. So we've got two questions here. Do you mind if I kind of address the first one? And if, do you want to talk about, or, I mean, I, the oil thing, maybe we can share both. They're both exciting questions. 
Well, you the the the, the second question is is you're one of your favorite. Well, one of my no, favorites. I, guess, I mean, the first one, both of the second they're, one is really the yeah. He's, they're both, he's yeah, like, they're both in your favorite. He paved the the road for me on this one. These are these yeah. are areas that I really love. Um, I know that just confirmed my nerd status to everyone that these are areas that I love. Um, as if that was necessary for <laughs> being on a show like this one. Okay, so his first question is a rule change looking for a problem. That's the subject line. Do you guys think that these four areas need additional SEC rules or is this government overreach? And we're talking about um, uh, the SEC chairman, the new new chairman, Gary Gensler, who, by the way, is... You know, we, I talked last week about the Federal Reserve and how I'm impressed that presidents still are putting in nonpartisan people there. The SEC is a little bit more partisan when Democrats or Republicans switch office. But as an aspect of different parts of the government, it's one of the least partisan. It's one of the least polarized. They tend to make decisions that are designed to protect the public. Do they do overreach? Absolutely. Uh, is it possible that they have overregulated the investment world? Probably. The question here is on several areas that the uh, that the new chairman of the SEC, Mr. Gensler, has said he wants to focus on. Um, the first one uh, is private uh, private equity. What does that mean? What is private equity? Well, that includes hedge funds. It includes privately managed portfolios. It includes pooled and uh, pooled vehicles that are sort of like mutual funds, sort of like ETFs, but not. This is this is an area that I think this is not a government oversight by any stretch uh, to look into this area. This is this will help you. In 1933, an act was passed by Congress and signed by the president called the Securities Act, amazingly, of 1933. Uh, We talk about this one because that act and the Securities Exchange Act of the following year, 1934, are fundamental to how the stock market works, to how we trade investments, to how it's regulated. One of the aspects of the 1933 Act is a section of it that is ultra-boring called Regulation D. Regulation D says what is a sophisticated investor or an accredited investor. And things have been tweaked on it. Um, they've been tweaked on it since 1933 quite a few times, but the last time we changed the numbers was about 30 years ago. What numbers am I talking about? In order to be considered an accredited investor or a sophisticated investor, you need to have a million dollars. That's not defined as being liquid. It just means that you need to have a net worth of a million dollars. A lot easier to be a millionaire today than it was 30 years ago. Inflation has occurred. So there's a lot of people that shouldn't be considered sophisticated when it comes to investments. What is that supposed to mean? Why is it Regulation D saying sophisticated or accredited investors? Why is that important? Because we're talking about private equity, private wealth management, where 
things are a lot more complicated. They're a bit more sexy. They're sexier too. People talk, I'm in hedge funds. The internal fee structure on private equity and on hedge funds is complicated, majorly so. It's very easy to think you're getting charged one thing and be charged something totally different. And the SEC says, hey, we've got to fix that somehow. That's what he's saying. Is that overreach? I don't know. It's probably their job. They need to tweak this rule because that's in their purview. Is it a new regulation? No, they should probably just update the number to inflation. That is their job. They're supposed to do this part. Yes. Well, one of the things that they're working on that that, that uh, Chairman Gensler wants to work on, which I think needs to be worked on, is the old pump and dump yeah. regulations that, that used to be... Uh, they were focused on people in the boiler rooms with people with telephones. And as a result, folks on Reddit, which we were talking about earlier, who own a stock and get on Reddit and say lots of good things about a stock with the clear intent of running the price of the stock up so they can sell it. Mostly got a waiver not intentionally, but mostly they because they were posting on a public bulletin board, they weren't calling people individually. So the regulation, it'd be really hard to nail them down under the regulation and the laws that they exist today. So I, I think that a lot of things like that need to be updated because there were a lot of people who lost a lot of money. And these same when, meme stocks that we were talking about. Yeah, and, 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 and there's a lot of things going on in the stock market that look a lot like the, what was going on in the 1920s, the pump and dump in the 1920s where where the telephone was new and people were getting telephone calls and they, the person on the other end of the telephone would tell them about this really hot stock and they, they buy it. And it was focused at that time on brokers selling the stocks. And that's basically the way the regulations focus today. They need to be update because, updated because commissions have pretty much gone away. So the brokers selling the stocks, that's kind of gone away. The brokers can't pump a penny stock up to a high price and then dump it and sell it. You know, they'll get in deep trouble. What about the individual who's not a broker, who's not registered with the SEC, who's not registered with FINRA, who, who is not in, quote, in the business, but still is in the position where they buy a few hundred shares or a thousand shares or whatever of a dirt cheap stock. And then they get on Reddit and they talk about how and they explain how this stock is going to go through the stratosphere. And a lot of people start buying the stock and more and more people buy the stock. And then the person who got on there and said good things about it sells it and makes a huge profit, not because it was anything good about the stock. But because but he convinced because other essence, people to buy it. Yeah. He was pumping the stock and then he dumped. Uh, the regulations don't cover that. And so well, they the cover it, but of, they don't cover the it well. Is, the burden of proof is really hard. Yeah. Uh, for a broker, it's really easy because brokers are regulated separately and they just can't do that, period. So uh, that's, those are all things, those are updates that are required. Now, yeah. before we go on to the next one, because it sounds like we're just nodding our heads and, and going along, yes, more regulations required on all these subjects. We started our investment advisory, the fiduciary side of what we're doing as an ind independent firm in 2007. And if we were to try to do it in exactly the same way today as we did then, it would be absolutely impossible. We didn't have enough assets. We didn't have enough staff to follow uh, and legal staff to look at all of the possible regulatory conflicts because those regulations didn't exist back then. 
It wasn't that long ago. I mean, it's long ago if you're a teenager because it's been your whole life. But in the scheme of the regulatory history of the United States, it's a lot of regulations that have been added quickly. The first two that we covered there, these aren't new. They're updates. And they're updates that are something that we recognized in 1933 were kind of required. Hey, you're not allowed to tell people to buy a stock just because you want to sell it. Hey, um, you, you need to have a definition of what accredited means so that when you give them really complicated statements on what they're being charged, they can understand it. Uh, today, and I've had calls on this, hedge funds marketing to people that have no idea what it is that they're being marketed. Uh, but they fall under the category of an accredited investor, so they're supposed to be able to swim with the sharks and be okay. So that's an you issue. Know the, you know, the income level now for an accredited investor, $200,000 for an individual or $300,000 right. for a couple. Yeah, and that's... Which that's, that's not a very lot of high. people. That's, that that's is the vast people. majority of the middle class. Uh, that's not sophisticated or accredited. I mean, that's just the reality of, of, of the world that we're living in is that it's not sophisticated. It is not accredited. Right. Um, okay. So what are the other things in this thing? Uh, we talked about two areas already. Well, number one, uh, he wants to improve the efficiency and resiliency of the market for U.S. Treasury securities. That's a no-brainer. This is the SEC's job is to uh, make markets efficient, to try to make the way that trading occurs in markets as easy as possible within the limits that are required by law. So this is an extra regulation. In fact, this is an ease on the market to make it easier to trade. Um, the next thing that he's talking about is executive compensation, and it has to do with a 2015 proposal if you recall back, that's the Obama administration. Uh, and the proposal was called pay versus performance. It sought to help investors judge whether top executives' compensation is in step with companies' financial performance. What does that mean? It means that more of the executive pay would be up to a shareholder vote. It's already there, but you have to make motions for it. You have to do some complicated things. They wanted to say, let's make executive compensation a vote by every shareholder or something close to that. And that is absolutely overreach. Uh, that's my opinion. I know I said the word absolute. Why would I say that? The way corporate structures work is that there's a board of directors that are elected by the shareholders. That board of directors is the one that okays or doesn't okay compensation to an executive. The reason why they're voted into place is so that they can take the time to actually measure what's happening in the company in detail that isn't available to the public. They get to go in and look at the books before they've been audited, before they've been put out. After they've been audited, they get to talk to people in the company and get a lot of information, which means that they're not allowed to go out and buy and sell normally on the open market. They're considered insiders. They're elected to be in a position where they say, we're trying to pay a competitive cost to our executives to get what we're trying to get. And if you make that be a shareholder thing, you fall into the area where CalPERS, which is the California pension system for teachers and for uh, the public employees of California, is a very activist 
um, investment firm. They don't really, they're not really out there in their activism hoping for rises in stocks that they buy. They're buying stocks so that they can change the management style. And if they stepped in and said, no, you guys get all paid the same as your employees, well, then they'd, use all, they'd lose all their executives because it's really hard to manage thousands of people. And it's really hard. To, I mean, th- I'll give an example. And it's an example that it's a company that everybody knows, IBM. It's been refining its direction, its focus. Uh, are we doing computers anymore? No, but we're still going to do mainframes. Are we? What are we doing? Well, we're going to do consulting with a lot of folks on HR. What does that have to do with business machines? I don't know, but if you look at the dozens of different sectors of IBM, do you know someone easily who's capable of managing that many different aspects of things to keep them online with an overall direction. It's not easy. And if you think of a captain of a ship, they are definitely needing to be paid more than the person that is swabbing the deck. Not that swabbing the deck is a bad thing to be doing, but there's a lot more responsibility and decision-making on that end. So I think that in this area, that proposal was based on studies that were done during the Great Recession about compensation going a different direction for rich people than for poor people. And I can look at articles that are out right now that are talking about um, things like where, where wages are rising fastest, and it's rising fastest at the lowest pay area. Uh, it's actually pay scales are dropping at the upper level. So just keep that in mind. This may be a regulation for a prior moment in history that isn't relevant anymore. So that kind of covered four different aspects of what they're looking at, what he says are his priorities for the year. Three of them we're in full agreement on, and our disagreement on the fourth one is going to have absolutely no bearing on what they decide to do. Right. (laughs) I think one of the things that's happened with regulations, particularly for you talked about the fact that we couldn't because we're regulated by the SEC. If, if you if you turn back the clock to 2007, it was relative, relatively, and I want to emphasize the term relatively, it wasn't easy, uh, but it was relatively easy to become an investment advisor. The, and, and there was, the SEC wanted Congress to pass laws for minimum educational requirements and a series of things to become a, a registered investment advisor, and Congress didn't and wouldn't and probably won't. So what happened with the SEC is they, I think, decided to really put a lot of details in existing regulations through enforcement and make it interesting, um, make it difficult for every person in the world to become a registered investment advisor and to put a little weight on it. And I personally think that might be a good idea. Uh, Back in 2007, uh, there were a lot of individuals just one person operations becoming registered investment advisors and frankly i don't think a single person can meet that meet the whole well i don't i I don't believe a single person could meet all that criteria it just depends on what they're doing i mean if they're giving advice on investments there are registered investment advisors that don't give investment advice they give you budget advice that single shop person i think that's perfectly all right but a true investment advisor 
person who's managing portfolios for people and so on. And we have a staff. What'd you say? We employ 11 people plus us. Yeah. Uh, and it takes all of us. Yeah. <laughs> There's not enough sometimes. I want to say one more thing about what the SEC is focusing on right now and that I think needs to be focused on. And one, and one of them is something called ESG, which is a criteria that yeah. a lot of people are using to buy stocks and or mutual funds. It's called environmental, social, and governance. And the problem is, and this is the issue, there is no universal definition for ESG. So, uh, for instance, I was looking at one of the oil companies, one of the major oil companies recently, looking at their stock, <laughs> and I noticed that they have a high ESG rating. So, their environmental rating is very, very high, and they're pumping oil out of the ground and spilling a certain amount of it and releasing yeah. methane into the air, but they have a high environmental ESG rating. Because they bought some carbon Ooh. credits or something in yeah, Europe. And right. The problem is that there is no regulatory definition. And ESG funds, mutual funds, and ESG stocks that tout themselves as being ESG, uh, very, very good for the environment, very good for social, whatever, uh, and very good in governance, have for the last couple of years sold better than the ones that don't tout themselves as being high ESG. Right. And there's no definition for ESG. So the one of the things that that Gary Gensler, the chairman of the SEC, is doing, which I think is positive, is going. He's starting with the mutual funds and said, "Give me your definition of why you say you're an ESG fund. What is the what is yeah. the objective criteria you're using?" And they're going to go, "Well, uh, uh, we like we, it. Uh, we like the we E, like and we like and, the uh, S, and we like the G, and they're good letters and, to have on here. And sales are a lot better when we say ESG." <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's another, and, and that's one we've talked about, it kind of ad nauseum. I've had folks talk to me about our episodes on the subject saying, ESG's not as awesome as I thought it was. Well, it will be once we've defined the definition. Uh, if yeah, that's it, something that's defining how you invest, it's important to you, then you need to have a pretty good criteria for what it is. And if it doesn't matter to you at all, it's still important that the people that are selling stuff are telling the truth. And- ESG is one of those things that I say you need to ask and research and not take a salesman's word or salesperson's word for it. Right. There are, in fact, I'm not going to name the funds because we don't name specific investments in here, but there are some there are some fund families that have a very, very good reputation for being very, very good if you want to invest your money someplace that's socially acceptable, that is environmentally positive, et cetera, et cetera. Now, historically, those the companies have not done as well in the market, but who knows? But the point is, if you feel that you need to do that, do your research on your own carefully. Uh, don't just take an advertisement's word for it because there is no real definition as to what that means. All right. So on to the next subject. And this is, this is one that is earth shaking. This is about oil as well, but not ESG. It's, a, it's about the Permian Basin, which is out in West Texas. It is a an area where there's been a lot of fracking. Um, what does oil have in common with 1980s and 90s denim pants? You got it? You got it? Acid wash. That's right. I just told a geology economics joke. As bad as an expert can get. Acid That's wash. really close to a dad joke. Yes. Fracking works differently than other oil drilling. Other oil drilling, there's a lake of oil down there. You drill down to it with a drill bit, a very long drill bit, 
you puncture the oil uh, reservoir and it's under pressure and so it shoots up and you can capture that oil. When the pressure starts to go away, you pump things down into that cavity like water or other, sometimes air, to get that pressure to be built back up again and shoot it back up. And sometimes the most of the oil wells you see that go up and down that you right. see in West Texas, they're simply there's a pump Suction at the pumps. bottom of the pipe and yeah. it's it's basically sucking the oil out of the reservoir up to the surface. Right. So that suction pumping, that up and down movement of the hammer is just like the old hand pump waters that you see in the farmyards where you're pumping those things. So it's a pump that's using vacuum to pull it out. So there's different approaches to getting it when it's in a reservoir. Well, fracking was this new innovation where you could take slate, basically the same stuff you see on a chalkboard, and you could blast high pressure different forms of acids and other oils to break down the hydrocarbons in the slate to actually dissolve it and then pump that out at pressure again like a soup and then refine the other portions out of it you just technically not slate it's shale which is different well i'm only it, the shale the slate comes from the shale layer so i'm saying yeah, this being yeah. very vague or at least generalized it's, it's I'm, called i'm oil, oversimplifying it's, it's called oil shale which right. would make very good slate it the slate by the way slate. slate no the slate the black chalkboards yeah yeah have such a high content of oil in them that if you can find layers of that that is the target that they really right. want Okay, gotcha. that black in the slate is is hydrocarbons. Right. Um, so shale is a much more shattery version of it, but slate falls in the middle of that. Okay, so what's going on here? His question is, will this make high oil prices here to stay? And he's talking about uh, an article in the Wall Street Journal where it's talking about um, a kind of oil, a kind of, uh, of place where... Uh, they're called res- reservoir or reclamation wells. Um, what, what it is, is when you get this acid, this acid wash that you've been using to blast into the ground to dissolve the, the shale and to pump that out. Well, what do you do with the acid when you're done with it? And this is, I'm going to kind of separate because what's talking here now is the Texas Railroad Commission. Those are the folks in charge of oil in Texas because oil is a railroad. No, that's not. Um, there is no why. Be- because in the state of Texas, we cannot determine the difference between railroad and oil. Yes, there is no why. This is They're just in charge of it, kind of like the energy and, department is in charge of our nuclear bombs. And the Railroad Commission does not regulate railroads in Texas, but it does regulate oil. Right. So just say this is government. <laughs> Texas. You don't have to know why. This is just the way they do it. The, the Texas Railroad Commission um, is asking them to shut down and remediate their so-called disposal wells. Okay. So that what that means is that acid that was left over that they pumped out of the fracking well, what do they do with it? Well, they've got these other wells that they've pumped them into. So now I'm going to give another kind of historical reference and then come back to this. Now that we've set the definition of what is, what is a, a disposal well, it's just a place that they're putting a lot of acid. Uh, back at the beginning of the fracking boom, Texas did something amazing. And this is one of the things that 
the rest of the world doesn't really understand. Texas is really, really environmentally protective for oil, for all kinds of things. I mean, we want to protect the environment as we're doing this. This sounds weird to anybody that doesn't live in Texas because Texas has this reputation of like the cowboy state and we're pumping oil and it's just spraying everywhere. But people don't like to have oil in their drinking water. I, I don't know why that's about, but then we've made laws. Well, Oklahoma, during the beginning of the fracking boom and Texas, there were both big, big fracking locations. And Texas made a law that said, you got to do something with that acid. Once you've pushed it into the well, you got to take it out and do something with it. You can't just leave it there. It's going to get into the groundwater. Well, this is way before the evidence on earthquakes came out. Oklahoma is now the number one state for earthquakes in the United States, and that includes Alaska. Yay. Just think about that for a second. Alaska has more earthquakes than California by far. It's a lot bigger. It is a huge state. And if you count all the earthquakes that happen in Alaska, they're nowhere near as many as what are happening in Oklahoma. And if you look at the seismic readings and the epicenter location of the earthquakes that are happening in Oklahoma, this is not, this is not rocket surgery. You zoom in on Google Maps and the epicenter is right in the middle of a disposal oil field where they're just storing that acid. It continues to be acid. It continues to eat away at the ground. And if it's near a fault line, it can make that fault line slippy. Uh, it doesn't take a lot. If you think about it from a lubrication perspective, uh, if you add a few drops of oil to some to some hinge that's squeaking, there's an amazingly huge benefit. If you think a whole big big door, the what is the weight of the door compared to one drop of oil on the hinge? The acid has that same kind of effect. It is making the fault lines lubricated not like oil would on a, on a hinge, but actually by making space between the cracks causes earthquakes. Well, Oklahoma is kind of embracing that and just kind of shrugging its shoulders and being Oklahoma. Texas is saying, ha we avoided that. We made rules. Okay, so now back to John's actual question. And that is that um, this isn't going to make prices stay high forever. What we did in Texas is we lowered the price of fracking oil by reusing it. The reason why it's being stored in all those disposal places is because we slowed down our oil production. Getting that acid out, it costs more to find another place to put it than to frack some more. So this should cause the price of oil to drop. In Oklahoma and in Texas, particularly when they were, my, when they were getting oil from roughly the same rock type, it became cheaper to get the oil in Texas than in Oklahoma. Same rock type, same company. And a lot of the companies realized this and they said, what, what's cheaper? Why is it cheaper? It's because they were reusing the acid. They already have a pump in place to pump it out. Uh, the big thing was to get trucks that were capable of carrying the acid. Well, they had those trucks but they were capable of carrying clean acid. They bought more trucks to get the dirty acid out, fix it up, and get ready to use it again on another fracking thing. Uh, so it caused the price of oil to be less from the same type of rock 
in Texas than in Oklahoma because they weren't reusing the acid in Oklahoma. They weren't pumping it out, putting it in a trunk and using it in another place. They would just leave it because on the surface, that seems like a cheaper thing to do. But then you have to buy new acid. So uh, the, the long and the short of this is that I suspect uh, well, what happened, these major companies, just like everybody else, since the pandemic hit, hit, have been pumping less oil than they were pre-pandemic. We had a big shutdown for a long time. Oil became not just cheap, it became expensive to own. You had to pay money to own it. You were actually paying people to take it off your hands rather than them paying to buy it from you for a short period last year or a year before last. That's something it's hard to remember for folks, but oil was at a negative cost per barrel. It cost money to get to, to have it because uh, there was no place to store it because we ran out of storage because people didn't slow down their production in time for the drop in demand. So oil is back up, and we talked about this at the beginning of the hour. We said, you know, what's, what's oil trading at? Uh, 86 something. Is that what? Yeah, it's at $84 during the weekend. It was $86 yesterday. So we're seeing a drop in oil right now, uh, even off of market. Uh, and some of it is related to this because these big companies, Chevron and Exxon, that got into fracking way late. They weren't the little companies that were doing it. They bought a, bought a whole bunch of bankrupt fracking companies in 2020. When the frackers just said they were living on a, a very, very slim margin with no savings in the bank and a lot of debt, and then nobody wanted to buy oil. So a lot of them went out of business. And the Russians and the Saudis were clapping each other on the back about this. They were at a war with each other over oil, but also with the United States. And they, one of their stated goals, both sides, was to put the United States frackers out of business. Well, they caused hundreds of fracking companies to go bankrupt, which caused the, the wealthier old line oil companies that sit on lots of cash because they know that oil can drop in price to come in and buy them up. So then they have these big disposal reservoirs in West Texas because now that they've acquired these companies, they've got to determine what to do with them. And if you buy them in bankruptcy, it means that it's mostly equipment None of the people come with it. If you buy them before bankruptcy, a lot of the people left. So they've got to figure out where is the stuff being stored, what's an, a good place to go back to refresh the oil well. That's where you put acid in it again so that you can cause it to produce oil again after you've pumped out all of the sludge from the acid that went into it the first time. Um, all of this is a really fun and cool project scientifically and economically it's going to be putting pressure on these big companies to get that asset out of the ground and then back in the ground somewhere else to pump the oil back out because the reality is what oklahoma discovered and what texas discovered is that it's really hard to store large amounts of liquid acid that will eat rock i don't know why that's hard it's like a it's the old riddle what do you put where do you store an acid that eats through anything? Well, where in do you glass. in glass? Well, unless it eats through anything, that's what anything yeah. means. 
Well, there aren't any acids that eat through everything. No, and that's the point, is that this stuff is acid that's particularly strong against rock. And if you store it in a rock tub, it's not going to stay in there very long. It's going to cause earthquakes. So getting it out and reusing it for its purpose and not making a bunch more of that acid if you've got a bunch that hasn't been used enough. The long term of that is that they will either have to form very expensive holding containers or reuse the acid. So if they decide to go the route where we're just going to build expensive storage containers, that's going to take a long time and and be very expensive. So I think they'll do it eventually because they do want to have control over when they're pumping and when they're not. And if the regulators come in and say, you can't leave your acid in the ground, you got to pull it out, they've got to pump more. Um, this is one of the very few instances that I can find off the top of my head where regulation actually led to more profitable businesses. It's usually the reverse. Usually a regulator comes along and makes it harder for you to do your job. And on the surface of this, it looks like that's what happened at the regulatory level. They came in and said, you can't do that anymore. It's going to make it harder to do your job. And then they found a way to to embrace the regulation and make it less expensive to do what they were already doing. Uh, anyway, that's that's my very long-winded answer to that question. I think it's fascinating. I think it's amazing. It's one of the very few times that you can find regulators improving the business community. So it's worth looking at. It's not normal for regulation to be better for the business world. If you'd like to talk to us off the air, we do give fiduciary investment advice to folks of high net worth and those of you that really are curious about it. Um, the local line is... 254-947-1111. And our toll-free number is 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. You can see our radio program there. You can also go to any podcast provider for that. Uh, it goes back lots of years. You, you can, can see our radio program? You can see it before you click it, and that's how okay. you see it. Um, we've got uh, newsletters there. You can sign up for that. Um, you can contact us through the contact form or email us directly at Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. Thanks for listening. Until next week, this has been the Personal Wealth Coach.